I think that we must tell stories of systems. We must be more aware of the various different effects that a technology coming to a system has. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Gemma Milne, who is a science and technology journalist covering all things from deep tech, including biotechnology, advanced computing, space, energy, and innovation for titles such as Forbes, The Times, BBC, and Quartz. She's also the author of a really fascinating and extremely well-written book called Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. Gemma and I covered a lot of ground in a fascinating conversation about critical thinking and how hype's power is in its illusion. We talked about how and why to see past hype, to express nuance, and to see systems, to inspire action and take responsibility for the world we want to live in. So I started out by asking her, what actually is hype and is it inherently a good or a bad thing? Enjoy. The way I think about hype is around this idea of what kind of fooling it creates. So if you think about going to a magic show, you can see that you're being consensually fooled. You know, you, you walk into the show saying, all right, magician, give it your best shot, fool me. Sometimes you might try to catch the fooling, sometimes you just sit and bask in it. But either way, you're saying it's okay to trick me. Lying is non-consensual fooling. And so you could say that fake news, disinformation, misinformation is non-consensual fooling. The person doesn't know they're being fooled. They're not agreeing to being fooled. Whereas hype, there's an element of truth in hype. What it sometimes causes is what I think of as accidental fooling, where a message goes out into the world, a person receives that message. And sometimes if they take it out of context or the emotional words that are used in the message, whatever it is, causes them to be fooled, causes misinformation. So I suppose I think of hype as more of a tool for information, a tool for getting a message out, this exaggerated publicity tool, shall we say, that sometimes results in the person on the receiving end of it being fooled and causes a sort of cascade of misinformation as a result. Yeah, no, I like that. And I like the the analogy with, with magic as well. If lying is non-consensual and magic is somehow consensual, for hype to be effective, does it need to be non-consensual? I, you know, I see what you mean. Exactly. I mean, this is kind of one of the questions that I try and answer in the book is when is it okay to sort of fool people in a bit of getting a message out? It's kind of like, when do the ends justify the means? And this yeah. is a question in the world of advertising in general, right? You know, is it okay to, you know, say to people, this is the best car that you should buy when maybe it isn't? You know, there's there's rules and regulations around how we advertise, but realistically, exaggeration and, you know, emotional messaging and whatnot is at the root of how we try to get people to pay attention to what we're saying. That doesn't necessarily mean that what we're saying is bad. However, 
when people are not aware of the fact that this is being utilized as a tool, I think it's immoral. And so if you think about things like subliminal advertising, that's mm, illegal yep. for a reason because people don't know that it's happening to them, whereas TV adverts are allowed. And so when is hype okay? When is hype justified? And when is it not? And sometimes that's related to how you utilize the hype. You know, what words do you use? What kind of manipulation do you use? But other times it's also the question relates to, well, what is it you're using it for? If you're using hype to get people to stay at home so that, you know, a pandemic gets sorted out, then you could argue that maybe it's okay to use more emotionally led public you know, service messaging. And this kind of question of when is hype okay, I think is it's a really moralistic question. It's a very individual question and it really depends on your kind of view of the world and, and what you personally want society to look like. And if you really want to understand hype, you have to engage in what you think is good for the world and what you think maybe isn't. And in order to do that, you have to understand society at a much deeper level. And hype basically stops us from doing that. It kind of blinkers us from asking these deeper questions. So I guess if you're trying to build a new market for something or, or change people's behavior, then there is potentially a, a good role for hype. But if you're giving exaggerating or misleading claims, which are tantamount to lying, but I'm familiar with hype partly around the Gartner hype cycle. Do you have a view around that? And may, well, maybe you could just describe what the hype cycle looks and feels like. So for people who haven't come across it before, Gartner is kind of like a research company that comes out with this report every year where they you know, release this graph that showcases the Gartner hype cycle, which picture a line graph that has this, it starts at the sort of zero, goes up into this big peak, comes sort of crashing back down and then starts going up again, but a much sort of smaller gradient, gradual journey back up again. And that's seen as the hype cycle. And what Gartner do is they essentially plot technologies at different points in the graph. So very nascent technologies will be right at that zero at the very beginning, right? So stuff right now that's probably you're not even hearing about very much that's in laboratories and the things that you're being published about it, the general public aren't reading. And then when you have this really steep peak, you'll see the sort of technologies that are getting tons of hype, but still seen as very early on. So maybe something like brain computer interfaces would be near that peak, perhaps. And then you have crashing down to the bottom. You have technologies that have had their sort of moment in the highlight, moment in the sun, lots of coverage in the mainstream press as this cool, new, awesome thing. And then has been people who think it's a bit old or oh, it's a bit past it now, or it's been criticized in some way that's kind of brought it back down to earth. So maybe something like virtual reality could be in that space right now. Um, and then going back up onto that hill of, you know, coming back up into the, into the world of goodness, shall we say, you'll have technologies that have gone through that sort of peaks and trough already and is now finally sort of actually being used and being found useful. And it's got a sort of rightful place and you could you know technologies like iot for instance might be there where they've gone through this crazy peaks and troughs of hype and now finally businesses are sort of using it and, and it's being actually helpful in the world um, and it's now being talked about in shall we say a more rational way a more useful way and it's been adopted the gartner hype cycle itself is hype <laughs> you have yeah. companies utilizing it as this shortcut tool you know thought leaders futurists corporate execs whoever copy and paste the Gartner hype cycle into the presentations about the future of X and use it as justification. And it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where you put this Gartner hype cycle out into the world. People believe that it's not just a study on hype, it's a study on 
development of technology and what eventually is going to happen and then is used to justify investment. So I think this is, it's actually like a brilliant example of a lot of the arguments that I'm making in the book is that hype has this power. People kind of associate things that are hypey with things that have value. I don't think it started out like that. I think it did start out as a study on hype and I'm sure people at Gartner would maybe disagree with me, but I think the fact that it's now utilized as a tool for investment suggests to me that it's not about hype anymore, but rather about predicting the future, which not no one can do. No, that's interesting. So it's kind of hype about hype or something. Yeah. It's kind of gone meta. And, and, and also, bear in mind, this is also sometimes used as a justification for hype. So if you've got an entrepreneur, right, who says, I've got this amazing invention or company, whatever, I know that the world needs it. So therefore, I'm going to create hype around it so that the world gets on board with me I get investment and then I'm able to sort of realize the potential of my idea. Now, in order to get the hype, they probably have to make exaggerated claims about what they're doing in order to get people to listen, right? If they're being really realistic about the nascent nature of the challenges that lie ahead for them or this, realistically, this is never going to be a thing unless people care about it and has tons of money put into it. If they're honest about that, it's not likely to come into the world, right? So hype plays this role of helping things come into the world that's again comes back to this whole thing of whether you think that's fine vr except from a you know med taking medical use out for a second i don't think vr the hyper in vr is justified i don't think it's that great a technology it's particularly in the world of advertising tons of money from advertising and media companies has been chucked into to vr obviously gaming as well and as a result, that money has then been reinvested in to make it better. Da, 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 da. Whereas like a technology like IoT, for instance, where the hype cycle had a whole load of, when it was at the peak, it had a whole load of frankly stupid uses, you know, connected umbrella to tell you when it's raining or some rubbish like that. But now as it's gone through all that and it's had the investment, had the interest, now it's actually being used in factories to, you know, help make things more productive or it's used in big massive office buildings to, you know, regulate when the energy usage, when energy is being used so that it can reduce reliance on on natural gas and on, um, on, on fossil fuels. So I suppose it kind of, it comes back again to your like personal view on like, do you think this is worth um, the self-fulfilling prophecy that hype creates? Are we okay with certain technologies that right now are being hyped? Do we really want them in the world? Um, and it's, it comes back to this like determinism that's around hype. This will happen. AI will cure cancer. Robots will steal our jobs. And it, t- it, it almost is like saying, we don't really have a choice. This is going to happen. Get on board. <laughs> it doesn't let but people go... I'm curious what your view is perhaps instead. So if hype helps things come into the world, like you said, and you're absolutely right, I think the kind of startup entrepreneur, Silicon Valley uh, mythology is to paint a picture of the future with your product or service in it and persuade investors and other people to jump on board and, and drag everyone along with you. But this idea of determinism is really fascinating. What, what do you think is a more honest or more realistic way of bringing things into the world shall we be inherently more uncertain and less kind of gung-ho with our predictions yeah what what do you think is a better way of talking about new ideas than than hyping them yeah this is the ultimate question right so i think you have to look at 
this I guess solution uh, both from the short term and the long term so start with the long term i.e the idealistic version of what I'm trying to put forward which is we don't have to rely on hype anymore as a shortcut because that is what hype is right it's a shortcut to get people that don't have the time the energy the inclination to understand things at a deep level however if we can encourage uh, a little thing called nuance in the way that we think about ideas in the world, whether that's the way they're written about in the press, whether that's the way we talk about them in business presentations, whether that's the way we talk about them over dinner with family and friends. And I do think society's moving that way. We've seen what's happened with these kind of opposite sides politics over the last few while and how that's been really damaging for society. You know, this idea of sitting on the fence was seen as a bad thing for politicians to do. And it's pushed people to take these sides, which actually now people are realizing, I think society is moving towards demanding more nuanced narratives and the coronavirus has also done that too where we're starting to see how interconnected our systems are how reliant they are on each other and realizing that the only way to really understand what actions to take is to be able to take a sort of system view but again this is still a long-term approach it's going to take a long time you know that requires changing education systems you know teaching critical thinking as something um, that people should be doing encouraging asking questions but not necessarily disbelieving everything that you read you know it's, it's a very kind of it's quite a large cultural shift that I suppose I'm trying mm. to play a part in you know the book is there to encourage people to critically think and to feel empowered to ask questions which I think is what we need in order to get rid of the reliance that people have on hype to get their ideas out there if we were all more open to nuance it meant that someone who has genuinely a good idea can put it forward and say these are the pros and cons this is where it's difficult I think it's useful because of x y and z and then society can analyze that in a way that's a lot more kind of informed than just believing a hyped up narrative and then we move forward as such now that's that's a very idealistic long-term view but ultimately that's what i want smoke and mirrors to try and advocate for and because because the reality situation is the way you know the markets work and the way um, most sort of Western capitalistic democracies work at the moment is there is a reliance on hype to be heard um, regardless of whether you're a good or bad company. Okay, so the first, the first kind of rule, shall we say, around responsible hype is distinguishing between vision and current reality. So share why what you're doing is important, why it deserves support, what policy framework it needs, what money it, need, it needs in order to move forward, but also making very, very clear about where we are right now. And it's absolutely fine to say, I'm working on this product because I believe in 10 years time or whatever, 15 years time, this is the world that it will result in. The world will look like this if it's a success. And you can be visionary in that respect, but where that gets muddled is a lot of the time entrepreneurs talk about it as this kind of fact. And people who are savvy understand the vision is being used as a sales tool but at the same time sometimes that clarification is not there and you only have to look at people like elizabeth holmes of theranos or theranos however you pronounce it to prove that she sold vision as fact we are changing the world with our device it works it's going to do x y and z no that was not the case and some people would argue that you should have let left them alone they would eventually got to the point of their device working You said earlier that hype is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you need, without without going into the specifics of that particular case, but you need to believe your own hype to sort of you make do. it a reality, don't you? You do have to believe your own hype, but that doesn't mean that you inflict lies upon other people. 
Um, there's a big difference between being like, I believe we can do this. We're yeah. not there yet. If we get investment, if the law changes, if we are able to hire the right people, I believe we can make this a reality. I believe I'm the best leader to do this. That's very different from saying our device does this and look at what the world will look like. So, so that's the first one. This, I really believe that to responsibly hype, you must be clear about what is vision and what is reality. It's not okay to sell vision and not correct people when they assume that that's reality, particularly when you have a piece written about you saying, this startup will do this or are doing this. And it's like, no, no, we're not doing it right now. We're going to do it in 10 years time, but they don't correct it. So it becomes this kind of um, narrative and we work was exactly that. The second uh, piece of advice, again, I guess I give people around responsible hyping is, Focus on telling the story of a system as opposed to problem and solution. And if you've gone ever gone to like any kind of workshop or whatever on how to write a pitch deck or how to sell your startup or how to sell your idea, you're taught to start with the problem, explain the problem, and then you put forward your solution, your company, your idea, whatever it is. You know, you basically then create this kind of like, we have we are solving this and we now just need your money to do it, right? So that, that's kind of your, your sort of standard journey of a startup pitch. I believe that these are really problematic because if we're talking about solving the big problems of the world, it's completely ridiculous to take one problem and one solution. The reality is, is that there's a system in which you have to exist. And so if you don't tell the story of the system in which your company or idea is there, you are misleading because you're missing out the kind of effects isn't that the role of the investor rather than the startup? So a single startup can only really sort of tackle one solution at a time, but an investor, whether it's a private investor or a government investor, can maybe invest in, I don't know, 10 biotech startups. It's, or it's, not about, it's not about what you're doing. It's about how you present it. So if you're creating, mm-hmm. I don't know, an app that helps farmers check the health of their cows, what you're saying is it's then the investor's job to go away and look at this huge, humongous system of food, agriculture, farming in which this app is moving into and expecting them to be able to do all that. And it's not the startup's responsibility at all to be able to actually have an idea of how their innovation is going to affect a much larger system. And this is part of the problem. We are not encouraging those who are creating things to think about more broadly what they're doing to the world. We're saying, oh, you just focus on that scientist. You just, you know, you're siloed. You're too busy thinking about that. You could, it's not your responsibility to think about how this might negatively affect a broader system. I believe that's wrong. I think that we must tell stories of systems. We must be more aware of the various different effects that a technology coming to a system has. If you say this solves this problem, and don't talk about other problems it might create as a result, that is irresponsible and it's not true. You're sort of lying by excluding something. And I do think that it's responsibility of entrepreneurs to put that forward. It's absolutely the responsibility of the investors to go and do their research too. It's responsibility of the media to talk about things properly. But the point of what I'm saying in Smoke and Mirrors is that it's not just one person's responsibility to do it, it's everybody's responsibility. Well, I, yeah, I, t- I totally agree with that. It's just hard, right? And especially mm. in a fragmented attention economy where capturing people's you know, imagination within little fragments of time, it's hard to express that nuance that you talked about. Doing things that are useful for the world, good for the world, responsible are hard. The conclusion of Smoke and Mirrors is there is no shortcut to this. You know, I give in the, in the conclusion, I give a sort of list of 
you know, nine things that you can do in order to spot hype. Make sure you pause, look at the context, who wrote things, you know, build a map in your mind. You know, we can, we can go through some of these. And I do think that those are useful tools. However, number 10 on my list after those nine is don't ever follow a list because it, that in and of itself is stopping you from thinking. You, you're oh. relying on something that's not necessarily actually having you think. Critical thinking is not about saying, okay, let me pull out my little checklist when a, when a headline comes out and make sure I'll just tick these things off. Oh, it passes all those things, so it must be true, right? That isn't critical thinking. Critical thinking is getting a huge amount of information thrown at you. You're going, I have no idea how to even look at this. This is really scary. Oh my God, I don't know where to start. And you jump in your little dinghy with your little paddle that's probably going to snap and you furiously start paddling and go, I'm going to try and make sense of this. Yeah. And that's, that's what critical thinking is. There's no, it's not easy. And it's this communication is not easy. Getting over, I believe that we, as a society, need to stop relying on hype. I don't think that it's a useful force. I think it's a problematic force in many different ways. It's a tool, but it's not being used in a way that is um, necessarily responsible across the board. And so therefore, we need to outmaneuver ourselves from relying on the system. And that isn't easy. I hope that I'm playing to this, I don't know, moralistic view of the world that in order to make the world better, we all must be a bit more responsible. And I hope that most people will agree with me. Those that don't, you're more than welcome to do that. But you also have to accept that knowing what I've just told you, you are taking a arguably less responsible tact for your own benefit but i really do believe that the way we get around misinformation the way that we challenge problematic things in society it isn't from a checklist isn't from a simple solution it's from hard work the things that jumped out for me from your list number four was hype curbs action mm-hmm. and number eight was hype relinquishes responsibility and i think those mm-hmm. two things are, are related and a direct consequence of a century or more of advertising driven consumerist kind of society where we've become mm-hmm. very passive in the world around us and i think if we're going to tackle some of these big complex challenges we need to get a bit more active about the world we want to build and create and so curbing action and relinquishing responsibility feel like very dangerous kind of outcomes of hype to me and so yeah and so for the relinquished responsibility that one relates to the artificial intelligence chapter and the narrative or the idea the hyped up idea that i kind of focus on is this idea that sort of ai is out of our control and one of the really famous headlines that probably everyone listened to this has read or heard or whatever is robots are going to steal our jobs. This narrative is really compelling, really sticky, seen it in sci-fi. It's culturally spread really, really easily. It's kind of funny, but also kind of scary. And what it does is it also links back particularly to this idea of the same sort of narrative is used around immigrants, you know, stealing our jobs that we are entitled to. So it's very othering. It's sort of, it's the robot's fault. This thing is coming. We should be scared of it and we should ask questions such as what does universal basic income look like? And are they really creative? Are they really able to have our jobs? You know, these kind of like quite far future questions, which are important, but realistically are thinking about this robot as this other, this technology as this other, that we don't have any, any control of whatsoever. We don't have any say. It's coming and we need to prepare. Automation is happening. That's really what it's saying. And if you decide to use a different kind of headline, and I'm going to use a headline that nobody's going to write because it's really long and really boring, but I would say a more realistic headline is corporate executives are making active decisions to replace human labor with automated machine labor in the name of profit. That is not saying that I think automation is bad. I'm not saying that corporate executives are evil people. I'm just 
reframing this idea of automation. And immediately what happens is instead of you saying robots are going to steal our jobs, you think of this thing in the future that's coming to get us, you immediately see where responsibility lies. You immediately see who the decision makers are. And immediately you start to see, well, what can I do about this if I don't like it? as opposed to it being this thing that's being imposed upon you. And so, you know, you suddenly start saying, well, what do we think about corporate power? What do we think about reskilling? If the corporate execs are going to replace people, surely they should have to give them a different job. You know, all these kind of questions that are much more current day. You can actually do something about it. You know, it's, it's not quite, I think it's actually in some sense, it's scary, but it's, you have more control. When, you, when we use narratives that literally relinquish responsibility because it stops people from realizing where power is, and where your decision making is happening, you are allowing those in power to not be challenged. What I'm really saying is that I think if we're going to have technologies that are going to infect the entire world, more people should have a say in how they're developed, what kind of biases are inherent, whether or not we're, we're okay with that, whether or not we're fine with it being used, as opposed to feeling like they have no control, they can't do anything about it, and they're feeling scared. So that's just one example of this kind of how powerful hype can be. But I'm just curious about your, your opinion or your, your beliefs around where we are sort of right now, especially in the midst, hopefully coming out of the first wave of the corona crisis, who knows what, if there'll mm. be a second wave, etc. But do you think we have more hype? Do you think there's a possibility for having some of these more complex narratives now around some, some of these difficult topics as a result yeah. of the current crisis? I, I guess I'm ultimately asking if you're <laughs> more optimistic or more pessimistic as a result of kind of where we are right now. If you'd asked me before coronavirus, I would have said that, you know, I hope that my book can be useful, but we've got a really, really long way to go. And there's a lot of stuff we have to um, we have to encourage people to think around systems and nuance and whatnot and that's really really hard to do right now because we don't really have anything immediate that pushes us to do that and then the pandemic happened and in some sense beyond all of the horrific things that are happening if you reframe this idea of does the long term look a bit better as a result in terms of narratives and nuance and systems thinking then I'm a bit more optimistic and the reason for that I think is as I mentioned earlier what has happened with this pandemic is it's exposed systems. So instead of people having to be taught about systems and having to sit in a lecture that might take an hour to unpick how the food system works, they've literally seen supply chains fall down right in front of them. They cannot get toilet roll. They cannot get their favorite brand of tomato sauce or whatever. And they go, oh, how come? You know, it's very easy to start getting those answers by looking at these systems that are being essentially thrown in your face and showing how, how fragile they are. And that's a scary thing that a lot of what's happening right now is, you know, there's going to be huge impacts in terms of the economy and all these sorts of things, as well as, of course, health. And, you know, there's so much death and trauma that I think as a society, we haven't even begun to start dealing with and we won't for a while. But in terms of the, the core sort of educational idea that's at the root of saying we need more nuance is systems thinking. And that's quite a difficult thing to try and teach people. And like earlier on when I said, you know, entrepreneurs need to talk about systems and you said that's really hard. I think it will be easier now to talk about systems because they've been laid bare. You know, yeah. the, the food system, the health system, the transport system, the international airline system, um, the, the political system, they've been made transparent. It's like being this machine with a whole load of cogs whizzing and turning, but they're spinning so fast that you can't, you couldn't see into them to see where the cogs that were jamming were. You just saw this thing that was running and it 
well, it kind of works and I, I don't really know where to start trying to pick it. And suddenly when they've been ground to a halt, you can start going, oh, hold on a second. Why is that cog there? That shouldn't be there. And oh, that's why that isn't working the way it should. Oh, interesting. You know, it's so much easier to see it when it's directly impacting you and part of the popular culture is to unpick these systems. So in some sense, in terms of do, we, do I think people are going to be more nuanced and hype is going to keep playing as big a role, I think it will still be there. It will probably manifest itself in different ways because we always are trying to get attention. But I do think that people who try and say narratives that don't take into account systems will be called out a lot more um, or will be questioned a lot more. Not to say what you're saying is rubbish, but I think they'll be asked to qualify what they're saying. And that, I believe, is absolutely a good thing. Um, and I really, really hope that that means in general whether that's businesses, governments, communities, whatever, are able to sort of tackle these things with a bit more empowerment and a bit more, I don't know, not having to rely on hype to do what they're trying to do. So many thanks to Gemma. I was really drawn to what she said about the need to see systems and be aware of the effects that a new technology or idea can have and to avoid the determinism and inevitability that hype creates. But I was also encouraged about what she said towards the end about the pandemic, which is exposed systems, which will be easier to see now. And hopefully we can bring more nuance into the debate around science, technology and innovation as a result. There are some links in the notes that go with this episode if you want to find out more about Gemma and some of the things we talked about. And I hope you found this episode interesting. Before we go, please can I ask that you rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might like it as well. This will encourage us to keep on making new connections and to find more interesting people to talk to and share those episodes with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community to address complex and collaborative challenges of our increasingly connected world. To find out more about Liminal or to subscribe to updates or even join the community, please visit weareliminal.co. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, keep on connecting people and ideas, and don't believe the hype. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you, and goodbye.